Hear the word of the Lord from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 24, reading verses 43 to 51. I invite your reverent hearing of the public reading of God's word. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will be set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Part of the subject matter of the Olivet Discourse is a reminder that as Christians we are stewards in God's household And as stewards, we are accountable to God for the righteous use of everything that he's given to us. And that becomes uh, a necessary part of the ethical imperative of the discourse before us. It's telling us about the future, but that is not its primary intent. It's to press upon us the imperative of what it means that Christ is going to come unexpectedly and suddenly is to awaken within us this notion that we are stewards in the household of God. Perhaps uh, reading one verse from the Apostle Paul is enough. Romans chapter 14, 12th verse, So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. It's a difficult verse, a challenging verse, but one that perhaps can be helped by the proper understanding of the discourse before us. Steward is a term used often in the New Testament from household servants. You and I are servants in the household of God. And servants, of course, are to work for the glory of the master of the household and thus were to be fitted out as good stewards. I simply remind you this morning that uh, the Apostle Paul uh, calls this household that you and I are servants in the church of the living God. And so this morning we will learn about stewards or servants, some good, some bad. But let's begin with the good servants. Uh, Good stewards know that they must uh, always be ready, verses 43 to 44. 
It's a carryover from the previous uh, lesson. If you look at Matthew 24 and the 42nd verse, therefore be on the alert for you do not know which day the Lord is coming. The unexpectedness means that we must always be ready. It is our reminder of what we do not know. What do we not know? We do not know when he's coming, and therefore we must always be ready. That is the point of the imperative of the discourse. Now Jesus will shift from what we do not know to what we do know. And what do we know? Again, as I've suggested, continual readiness and preparation. Good stewards know the application of the uncertainty of the coming of the Lord. Now, the New American Standard reads in verse 43, be sure of this, but more literally the text is, know this as an imperative. This is something you're to know, or it could be a factual statement, you know this. Either way, the controlling metaphor is that of the thief who comes suddenly and unexpectedly. The moral point of the unexpected coming is Perpetual vigilance. I've always been fond of the words of Thomas Jefferson. Eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. You want to be free? Then you must always be vigilant. Never let your guard down, Jefferson is telling us. Of course, he's writing with respect to the Constitution, but we are here to hear of the greatest of all constitutions, eternal vigilance, in freedom that comes from the knowledge of Jesus Christ, the only Redeemer of His people. Vigilance. Jesus tells us what this means. Verse 44, For this reason you too be ready. It's an imperative literally summoning us to continual preparation. One of the unique things about our culture in the past 10 or 15 years I've noticed, uh, in fact, we've coined our own word for it, the uh, word preppers. You may not know what that means. You know, what is a prepper? Well, a prepper is someone who has this sense that things are going terribly wrong and that we are racing towards some great catastrophe in the American experience. And so they dig underground bunkers and they put away years worth of food and on and on. And it's, again, I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong, but uh, uh, somewhat amusing to me. There's a television program that uh, captures some of this sentiment. You go and you, you buy this elaborate underground bunker. In one show, the guy built a sphere. So when the oceans flooded the earth, you would float upon it through this great catastrophe. I mean, that's kind of bizarre, but people are given to that stuff. And again, I'm not, you know, if you've stored up several months of food or whatever it is, junk silver, I'm not against that. I'm just saying uh, the reality of this text is to be a spiritual prepper, always ready, always laying aside treasures in heaven. I mean, if your only hope is the earth, then I guess you would be a prepper, I suppose. Uh, but there's a much greater catastrophe to come, and that is the coming of Christ. A reminder that we ought not to be caught unprepared. Store up treasures in heaven. The Lord knows we need treasures on this earth. 
Uh, he knows we need certain things, but it's uh, the mindset that this world is not our home. It's not a place where we reside permanently. We are simply pilgrims passing through. We're to lay up treasures in heaven. Another way to look at the preppers is sometimes they're called survivalists. I remember a number of years ago going to a hate to say it, but a gun show. So some of you will mark me out automatically as a gun enthusiast. But I, I was somewhat struck by there was a table for those who, uh, uh, who wanted to uh, escape the coming tribulation and wanted to hide somewhere in the forests of Arkansas. What does survive at all? The problem with that is the church can't go that road because you and I are called to be lights in the world. You can't be a light in the world if you're living in some bunker in the forests of eastern Oklahoma. We are called to be in the midst of people carrying the gospel of Christ as the only hope of the coming judgment. And so survivalists and preppers, again, trying to escape whatever. I don't make light of it. I just know that something greater is coming. And that, to be sure, we are to be in continual preparation for. How do, we, how do we prepare for that? Well, we do it, of course, in a measure at Grace Bible Church. I trust you do it in a measure of it at home. Confession, repentance, the use of the means of grace, the practice of love. Using our gifts and talents for the glory of the eternal kingdom. Prepare in those ways. If you want to build a storm shelter, I'm not against that. Build one. I, a lot of people on my block have storm shelters, but there's a greater storm coming. That's what Jesus is saying. Have the right shelter in Jesus Christ, advancing His kingdom. The household of the faith, which is the church of God. You and I have a measure of this in our daily jobs. Uh, I don't know, perhaps... Uh, uh, your work, you're audited by corporate headquarters. They come in with their checklist and they check everything you do. And you know that you can't get ready for that inspection the night before, so you've got to continually be ready. Some of you at, my, at work might have a quality control program and auditors are coming down from headquarters or from some uh, auditing group or company. And you, you can't do it the night before, you, so you must always be ready. That's the point. God will come time of His own choosing and we're to be called to account, so we must continually prepare. In our case, we're to stay ready and stay serving because that's what stewards in the household of the faith do. An essential element of readiness is the reality that there are thieves in the world. Again, the Lord is not a thief, but He will come like a thief. But one of the ways that we prepare is the recognition that there are thieves in the world in which we live. Most of us uh, lock our doors, lock our windows. Some of you have alarms, I'm sure. Physical preparation is a part, protection is a part of life. Greater part is spiritual protection of the soul because thieves will want to come and to take it away so that we will not be ready. 
you and I live in a corrosive world, which in and of itself speaks to continual spiritual preparation. When Charles Hodge, the great Presbyterian scholar, went to Europe to study, one of his colleagues wrote him a letter and warned him that he was breathing dangerous air. And so it was. Uh, much of European theology was corrupting the church because the world is filled with thieves. I have a good friend of mine uh, who's a devout Christian, teaching elder in a church, uh, raised his children to be Christians as best that a man can. His uh, daughter went to Columbia University and was radicalized by a Christian professor and left the faith. Again, that's just simply the way that life works, and so we must be continually preparing for the dangers that abound. Imagine sending one of your children to a secular university where a Christian quote-unquote professor radicalizes the faith of one of your children so that they leave. Perhaps she'll return. I trust in the grace of God. She will, either in the gospel or the Spirit of God coming to discipline and to cause her to persevere. I mean, who knows? But the times are dangerous times. And thieves abound everywhere. And they can steal more than just your property. It's a summons to always be prepared. Those of you who have children would give your life for their protection and their life for their gospel. And yet the world is an incredibly corrosive place. And so we must be continually prepared. Besides this, uh, seeing thieves in the world at secular universities, we see thieves in the church, don't we? Another summons to spiritual preparation. Uh, Paul makes this point to the Ephesian elders. Acts chapter 20. Here's a great apostle Paul going to Rome and to death, and he stops by the church at Ephesus. This is what he tells them, beginning in verse 29. I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, that I did not cease to admonish you with tears. He knew that danger was going to knock on the door of the church at Ephesus. He was trying to awaken them to their danger. Notice his prayer in verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Ultimately, their great defender, Paul is going to leave, and so he turns them over to the grace of God to protect and preserve the church. Apart from that, none of us would make it. But in that, we are summoned to live daily by the grace of God, preparing for the coming of our Savior. It's no light matter. But imagine wolves coming into the church dressed as sheep. 
camouflaged and disguised, ravaging the flock. Well, it's only been occurring in America for several decades. Why part of our spiritual preparation is to pray. Be reminded of the grace of God, which alone can protect us ultimately. It's also the great reality of the gospel, is it not? Jesus says in John 10, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and might have it abundantly. It's a reminder that as Christians who know the Savior, he ultimately is the good shepherd who protects his flock. I mean, that great text, I give eternal life to them and they shall ne never perish and no one shall snatch them out of the hand of my Father. It's my reminder to you, if you're not a Christian, you're only safe in Christ. Outside of Him, the world is a howling wilderness filled with thieves who are simply waiting to pick your pocket and steal everything about your spiritual life save you be guarded by the one protector in the grace of God, in the Good Shepherd. And so good stewards, again, know and understand the application of the times to always be ready because thieves are always about us and Christ will come like a thief and demand an accounting. It's kind of humbling thought and that's one of the great realities of the Christian faith, to be humble in all things because absent the, the grace of God, we will all slip away. And grace keeps us from slipping. My most favorite benediction, now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling. It's what God does for his people. That's why we should forever be humble and hold fast to him. Well, good stewards also know what they are about and who they are, verses 45 to 47. The good steward is described in verse 45. Who then is the faithful and sensible servant whom the master puts in charge of his household as a steward? First, he is faithful and wise. The New American Standard has sensible, but I like the word wisdom. The account is of a trusted servant who takes charge of the household in the absent of the owner of the house. I mean, perhaps he has a record of doing right things. He, he does good, small things well, and so the master puts him in charge of big things. Uh, he has the practical ability to apply wisdom. But again, he's called faithful. That's an abiding term. The Apostle Paul uh, reminds us of that in terms of his own life in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ. I simply remind you that you will never graduate in the church from being a servant. If you don't see yourself as a servant, then something's wrong. The Apostle Paul, as great as he was, a timeless man throughout the centuries, saw himself as the servant of the church and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, verse 2, it is required of a steward that a man be found faithful. He doesn't say that a man be found happy. 
popular, always healed. He says that a man may be found faithful to the calling of God. That God passes the baton of the faith to his apostles who in turn pass it to the church of the living God. We're to protect it, keep it, preserve it, fight for it, and stand firm in it. And so Paul says, let a man regard us in this manner as stewards of the mysteries of God and faithful to Jesus Christ. And I love the story, the historical account of Athanasius who defended the deity of Christ and the church says to him, all have left, you stand alone. He says, I'm willing to stand alone for the deity of Christ. You stand against the world, and I am against the world, Athanasius said, because he is called as a steward of the household of God to be faithful to Christ. We chase everything in America. Popularity, youth, this and that fad that sweep in and out of the church. Reckon that as a steward, you're called to be faithful in good times and bad. One of the aspects of wisdom is the ability to discern when error comes into the church. Ability to see the reality for what it is. By the way, I love the account of wisdom in Daniel chapter 1. You have your Old Testament. Great reminder of the grace of God. Paul commenced the Ephesian church to the grace of God. Uh, Daniel is uh, taken away from his homeland. The uh, temple is ransacked. The people are carried away into captivity. Uh, all along the way to Jerusalem, they're mocking the God of heaven. Sing us a song of Zion, Daniel, because God failed Zion. This young man placed in the seat of corruption, the most powerful nation on the earth. How is he going to survive? Daniel chapter 1, verse 17, For these four use God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every brand of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Daniel needed and God gave it to him in wisdom and preserved him and kept him as a witness in the midst of a corrupt court and kingdom. That's the only way Daniel survived. It's the way we survive. Secondly, in the account here, the master appoints the steward. Again, all throughout life, we need to understand what we're to be about. And what we are to be about is servants in the household of the faith. A sense of calling must pervade our character. You and I are not children of chance. talking with a friend of mine who was having problems in his church with people using the word good luck. And so he had a funeral service for luck. Because there is no such thing as luck for the Christian. Or for anybody for that matter. There's no chance. God is king. God is sovereign. His providence touches every event of life. You and I are not children of chance. We're the sons of the living God appointed to be servants in the household of the faith. We are not left to wander to our own devices, and neither are we self 
appointed. Have your Old Testament turn to Jeremiah chapter 1. The call of the prophet. Verse 4 and 5. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. And I've appointed you as a prophet to the nations. You and I are appointed by divine decree as servants in the household of the faith, stewards of the mysteries of God. We must have that sense of appointment because it keeps us in the vagaries of the times when men come to pick our pockets and steal our faith away. The Apostle Paul knew this. Galatians chapter 1, sense of his calling. Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. But when he who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me. That's what God did to you if you're a Christian. He set you apart in eternity past, sent his son in time present, consecrated you to be a servant of the gospel, the household of the faith. It's important that Jeremiah knew his call. It's important that Paul knew that he was so called because it sustained them in difficult ministry and in violent times. Simply a description of the times that you and I live in. What sustains us? The eternal God of heaven has set his mark upon us to be his servants. And that God appoints us for the doing of service in His kingdom. We are here for a divine purpose. So that when the Lord comes, He should find us doing the work of such service. Verse 46. Blessed is the slave whom the master finds so doing when he comes. I think one of the most difficult things as a Christian is to realize we're not masters, we're servants. We serve the Lord, we serve our brother. There's one master of the household, and that is the eternal Lord of glory. If you see yourself in any other way, I will tell you at some point, you're going to end in spiritual trouble. But the doing here is, of course, present tense, a perpetual doing, continuous action. We're not passive. Our service is not in fits and starts. There's this national debate in America today about citizenship and proof. When I go vote, I have to show a driver's license, but in other states it's not so. For whatever reason, I'm not here giving a lesson on preparation for voting but that we are identified as the servants of God, our identity to the world ought to be perpetual. When Christ comes, He won't ask you for an ID. He'll know it in your serving. That's your identity. Something of this, I think, that I'm trying to convey in... Uh, 
a different moniker used of the church in Revelation chapter 1, sixth verse. John writes, and he has made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and Father. You and I are priests to the living God. It's an allusion to Exodus uh, chapter 19 and verse 6 of the identity of the nation of Israel. They've been called out of Egypt to be what? Kingdom priests for the Lord of glory. They failed in that identity. And so it's reestablished in a new Israel in the church. But now it's realized because Christ makes us priests. Not just a summons, it's the identity of who we are. We're priests of the living God. Lots of churches, of course, have that as a special calling of God. Roman church, Eastern church, Anglican churches, Grace Bible Church, if you've experienced a new birth, you're a priest. You don't aspire to the office. You are made to the office by the sovereign work of the living God. And what do priests do? They serve. Throughout the Old Testament, when you look at the priestly ministry, they were daily offering sacrifices to God. You and I don't bring sacrifices to God. We are the sacrifice. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We bring living sacrifices. We are the sacrifice. That's what priests do. By the way, Christ was a high priest. He sacrificed Himself to purchase His people. You and I don't do that, but we are priests nonetheless to advance His kingdom, to advance His glory as stewards and servants of the great kingdom of God. That's your identity. Grace Bible Church, we don't, uh, we don't make cards for you and laminate them, put your picture on it. We just simply call one another to live it because that's what we are. Servants of the living God, stewards in the household of the faith. Let's look at the picture of bad service. A negative. We've spoken to the positive. Let's look at the negative. Good stewards also understand the outcome of improper service in the wicked steward of verses 48 to 51. We know that there is improper service, and so we turn away from it. All these churches that are uh, sanctifying alternative lifestyles, you understand innately what that means, a perversion of the Scripture, a turning away thereof. Because God has called us to be faithful. It may not be popular in our culture, but God doesn't call us to be popular. He calls us to be faithful. Understanding what God does to the wicked servant, 4851, his master appoints him. Perhaps he too had done the right things. But he goes bad. Does it go to his head? I don't know the reality and the outworking of it. What I do know is this servant turns bad. When the master leaves, the text reads that he says in his heart, verse 48, that in and of itself is a reminder that that's always where the battle is. The heart. 
Outward conduct is a good thing, but if the heart is not the Lord's, the man will eventually turn. This one does. I remember talking to a friend of mine a number of years ago who uh, attended a, a different church for a number of seasons and said, uh, you know, when I graduated from high school, moved away from home, I watched uh, my other high school students in the church where I attended. When they left home, they left the church as well. It's a reminder of the heart. The heart is where the battle always is fought. And if your heart is just to please your parents, when you're removed from them, you will remove yourself and vacate service to Christ. But the steward presumes that his master will delay returning after a long period of time, and in that he errs. He thinks he has plenty of time to exploit and terrorize those committed to his care and to fail morally. It's our reminder that men fail internally long before they fail externally. Again, if the Lord doesn't have your heart, you may put on a good show. You may wear some robes. You may wear a cross. Heart's not there. You'll eventually defect from the faith because the thieves are too powerful for you to ever overcome. You may put on a good show for a season, but when the season over with, you'll eventually defect. Actors, pretenders, and the self-deceived will eventually betray their true allegiance. And at the worst time, God comes to ask an accounting for the faith. The consequences are sobering. In, in, in fact, quite striking uh, when the master shows up to seek an accounting from the man who turns bad, Matthew 24. The text reads that his master literally cuts him. It's quite a harsh uh, consequence, but nonetheless, the text is what it is. Then, of course, he's cast out of the kingdom of God. Luke says uh, in the parallel that he's cast out where the unbelievers are, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, Luke uh, chapter 13, the 28th verse. You'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves being cast out. The Lord will show up and the angels will uh, carry the lost away to eternal destruction and yet they will see and catch a glimpse of the righteous going in to inherit the everlasting joy of the eternal kingdom of God. be a terrifying thought, would it not? It's the point of the text to purify our faith, to quicken us to the identity of serving, to be a good steward in the household of the faith, but to be found doing when the Master comes. Let's turn back to the positive. Yes, there are consequences to rendering bad service. That in and of itself is to humble us, to cause us to flee to the grace of God, lest we be uh, 
numbered in such company. Now, you and I are otherwise uh, because good stewards are enabled and gifted by God for corporate service. But God in His grace does. So, review this from a number of New Testament passages. Romans chapter 12 and verse 6. The Apostle says, And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, it's not just that we have this title as servants of God. God gifts us. He gives us grace to enable to be good servants. That in and of itself ought to encourage and strengthen us and press us into the service. Similar text, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Pardon me, chapter 1 and verse 4. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus. We're linked to the Savior and so linked grace is given to us. That's the only way we can continue daily rendering proper service to God. Grace enabled us to so serve. Look at verses 7 to 9. So that you are not lacking in any gift, waiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall confirm you to this end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That you're not lacking in any good gift. Whatever you need, God gifts you with, so that you won't be found lacking in the day that He comes. That's an incredible promise. I love the statement, God is faithful, verse 9. That faithfulness and God go together in equipping His people. If it were otherwise, none of us would ever make it. And that is why one of the mottos of Grace Bible Church is to God alone be the glory. Because He's faithful to so equip us so that we're not found lacking in any good thing. Ever gone to your job? Maybe, maybe to uh, be found in a situation where you left the right tools at home, or uh, your computer crashed. Doesn't happen with God's people. He's faithful continually, and that's why we're faithful continually doing the work of the service, always ready, always preparing. 1 Corinthians 15, 57, that God gives us the victory. I love the hymn, Be Thou My Vision. The vision all of us ought to have is He's given us the victory. We're going to see the victory. The victory will own us. We will not be lost. We will not be found wanting because He gives us the victory in His Son, Jesus Christ. Another great reminder of the grace of God, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of the gift of Christ. We don't wander around despondent and dejected because God has so gifted us to be good stewards in the household of the faith.
We're never found lacking. That's the grace of God. It's one of the reasons that we ought to be inspired to have the vision to press ahead, to be faithful, because God is always faithful to us. The text, as you know, is also an account of a future reward because the steward is promoted and advanced in the favor of God. Well, like manner it is for the believer in Jesus Christ. Psalm 37, in verses 5 and 6. It's an interesting psalm because the man is troubled at the advance of the wicked. But he says, let them be like the chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them on. But our promise is different. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him. And notice what the text reads in verse 5, Psalm 37. He will do it. Commit your way to the Lord and he will bring it to pass. Because we're his sons. We're sons of the kingdom. We're priests of the living God. He'll bring it to pass. I love verse 6. And he will bring forth your righteousness as light and your judgment is the noonday. He'll vindicate all of His servants. Reward them all. Now the parallel, as you know, is the 73rd Psalm. Verses 23 to 24. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast taken hold of my right hand. With thy counsel thou wilt guide me, and afterwards receive me to glory. God comes as the good shepherd. He guides us with his word. In the midst of all of the vagaries of being his servants, he will come and place us into glory. It's enough to stir us onward in the faith, to be faithful. That is the point of the grace of God. We're never to be found lacking. We're never wanting. Grace is stamped upon us from eternity past, present, and future. All along the way, the Spirit of God quickening us to be the servants of the living God. The point of the text, we're to be good stewards. We are made stewards by the grace of God. We're quitted out to be stewards by grace and the Spirit that continually preserves and keeps us. So serve. Keep watching. Keep serving. It's the summons of the text and you'll never be caught unprepared. The uncertainty of the coming of the Lord means that we are always to render good service, and yet the grace of God is always present to so equip us to give good service. He's the giver of grace to the very end to which He calls us. It's a daunting task to be a priest of God in a godless world until we understand fully Grace was given to us according to the measure of the gift of Christ. The application of this text is uh, ever-present, is it not? You and I are not here to serve ourselves. I understand there's a measure of that. You have to go to work, you have to save, you have to buy transportation, so many things. But ultimately... We're servants of God. 
come to recognize that everything you have is for his glory. Everything about your life, from the cooking of a meal to the opening of a can of beans, is for the glory of God. Nothing is absent. The purview of the faith. And the purview of the faith is the constant reminder that we have been given the grace of God to so reckon who we are and what we are to be about and what the uncertainty of the coming of Christ means when we will give an account. Daunting prospect. And then grace catches us to so live our lives in a way that will be pleasing to God. It would be my prayer for you, and I trust it is your prayer for me, that in this corrosive world filled with thieves, we would be known as the servants of God, always preparing for His coming, always reminding one another of the grace that fits us out to be ready when he does come. And may God so bless us to this end.